This is the beginning of, of John 20 that Sarah read uh, earlier so well. Early in the morning of the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, they have taken my Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. Peter and the other disciple left to go to the tomb. They were running together, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and was first to arrive at the tomb. Bending down to take a look, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Following him, Simon Peter entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. He also saw the face cloth that had been at Jesus' head. It wasn't with the other cloths, but it was folded up in its own place. Then the other disciple, the one who arrived at the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. Yet they still didn't understand the scripture that Jesus might rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she cried, she bent down to look into the tomb. She saw two angels dressed in white, seated where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head and one at the foot. The angels asked her, woman, why are you crying? She replied, they've taken my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. As soon as she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, don't hold on to me, for I haven't gone up to my father. Go to my brothers and sisters and tell them I'm going up to my father and your father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene left and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. Then she told them what he said to her. This is God's word for God's people. God's people said, amen. I've been thinking a lot about the future lately. The other day I was at Foster's Market just down the road here, and I, I swore I encountered someone from the future. He was about mid 50s and really scraggly, kind of wild looking. And he had a Bernie Sanders 2016 shirt that looked like it was apparently 20 years old, right? Like I, I just wanted, I, I wanted to grab this guy by the shoulder and be like, what happens? Tell me about November, please. I think about the images of the future in movies and TV that we grew up with. The creators of those were surely thinking really deeply and creatively about what the future would look and feel like. I think of Back to the Future too, right? Like this is the world we're living in right now. DeLoreans and hoverboards have a little way to go. And strangely enough, one of the characters is actually running for president right now. So they really got 2016 right. But generally, have you noticed that our future is always one of two things when, when people think about our future? 
they think of one of two things. Either things have gone really well and we've advanced and progressed, something like this, you know, or like that, right? Or like that, you know, future, future's going really well here. Or we're living in some dirty, desperate dystopia, right? Things have gone wrong. There's not a whole lot of hope. There's only survival. Notice if the future turns out well, we're going to live in sterile, clean environs. It's still not quite clear to me what Rosie, the maid in the Jetsons, is always sweeping up. There's no dust. There's no dirt, you know? She's just, I think she's nervous that her job's going to get taken by the Roomba, you know? <laughs> On the other hand, if things don't go well, it seems like dirt is all there is all the time. No one's ever growing anything, right? There's just dirt and dust of the fallout of whatever apocalyptic scenario that came by humanity's own hubris. Notice these two futures kind of line up well with our political ideologies right now, right? That we might progress to something better and better if we just harness our massive capabilities and work together. We might even build a stairway to heaven. It might be so great. Or it's all going to hell in a handbasket, a filthy, forsaken handbasket, and things won't be the same ever again. But here in John's gospel, here on Easter morning, we celebrate the future of the world that has begun in the resurrection of the man, the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And here's the punchline. It involves dirt. <laughs> After all, you can't grow the first fruits of the new creation without soil. Jesus' beginning is the beginning of the crop of which we're a part and of which there will be plenty more, a bumper crop of renewal. 1 Corinthians 15 puts it this way. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through one man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through one man. For as in Adam all die, in Christ all have been made alive. And John's gospel subtly tells this creation and recreation story that Paul so keyed in on. The top of this morning's resurrection story gives these three time statements in the morning on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. The writer wants our attention, wants to remind us that his good news story has been peppered with signs, signs of just what this Jesus was up to. In John's gospel, Jesus doesn't perform miracles as much as he reveals signs of this coming kingdom, signs of this recreation of the world. And so in these seven signs, they start they begin with his keeping the party going better than it ever was at a Canaan wedding. That's the first sign in John's Gospel. They move on to things like the feast that grew out of a little boy's, I think it's like a little boy's ancient Near Eastern Lunchable, you know, like that's into a feast. Another sign was that light of the world illumination 
into that blind-born man's eyes, all the way to the resuscitation of Mary's dead brother Lazarus. And then these signs culminate with the sign of signs, the crucifixion of the Messiah. Just as the Genesis creation began with excess and grace and ended with Sabbath rest, John's gospel tells the same story. The excess in grace of the water turned to wine, celebrating the overflow of intimacy and communion in Cana to the it is finished of Friday on the cross, the silence and emptiness of Saturday. It's out of that space that we find our rest. And then, early one morning, on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. I think she, I don't know what she expected to find. Maybe she expected to find chaos, formlessness, void. How could there be a future now that their hopes had been dashed? The one they had hoped in had been lynched, had been destroyed. The revolution was derailed. The empire had struck back. God's kingdom was not all it had had been cracked up to be. But instead, instead though, instead she stumbled into the first day of the new creation. One theologian says, the word through whom all things were made is now the word through whom all things are being remade. Jesus' resurrection is to be seen as the beginning of the new world, the first day of the new week, the unveiling of a prototype of the new humanity, what God is going to accomplish in the rest of the world. This starts with Jesus. Friends, don't miss this. The first Adam in the Garden of Eden made a selfish and destructive choice that led him and his whole race away from God, away from God's desires for a flourishing creation in tune with its creator. This second Adam also made a choice in that Garden of Gethsemane, a choice to be faithful, a selfless and constructive choice to submit to death even death on a cross. And this death would lead him and his whole kin back to God, back to God's desires for a renewed and flourishing creation in tune with its creator. And then by his creative spirit, this creative God raised him from the dead. Y'all need to say hallelujah every once in a while. Hallelujah, this second Adam is risen indeed. And Mary meets this second Adam. Or more accurately, that second Adam meets Mary. He knows her name. She met Peter and the beloved disciple with only fear and uncertainty. They've taken the Lord from the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. She met Jesus through the blur of her own weeping, her own despair. 
You see, this Jesus knew that feeling. He'd wept at Lazarus' graveside with a Mary. He understood the depths of despair and sorrow. He asked her the same question that the angels asked her, why are you crying? But then he continued. He continued and said, what are you looking for? Who are you looking for? He asked us the same question. If you're here in the midst of confusion or sorrow, he asks you that same question. Who are you looking for? We're stuck in this lag where the world looks and feels a whole lot more like the world of the first Adam, a world of thorns and thistles, than a world with cypress and cedar of this new Adam. When tears are blinding you, who are you looking for? When you don't know how anything could possibly be made right, who are you looking for? When there's no end in sight to whatever trauma you're in, it's emotional trauma or spiritual trauma or physical trauma, relational trauma, who are you looking for? Then Mary makes a really ironic statement. It's ironic because it's truer than she could have possibly known. She stumbles into the right answer. She, she bumbles into sal salvation. She mistakes the resurrected Christ for a mere gardener. And she was more correct than she knew. So you see this happy accident witnesses to the fact that the Jesus she confused gave her a glimpse into the future. It's a, it's a dirty, visceral, physical future where the compost of our sin and death has now been made useful for the renewal of all things. It's a future that brings all of history to fulfillment. It's a history that started in a garden and ends in a garden city tended by its Lord. Someone who I, I really like to read puts it this way. His name's Tom Wright. Easter was when hope in person surprised the whole world by coming forward from the future into the present. We, we meet Jesus in that overlap. We get disoriented, I think, sometimes by it, like Marty McFly, right? Like we're just in this weird space. We're back to the future. For one, I think this drastically reshapes and shapes the way we think about the future. If the future is breaking in, if it has broken in in the present in Jesus' resurrection, we darn well better be able to see it when it's in front of us. We sure as heck ought to participate in it rather than just sitting around and waiting. Rather than sitting around in anxiety, waiting or plying our way into some sort of cleaner, safer, more secure reality that's not all that good, true, or beautiful. And I think this sort of tangible concreteness, this bodiness of the resurrection means that we act out that hope that we've met in the risen Jesus. So first, like Mary, we let this resurrected Jesus meet us 
in our fear, in our disorientation, and we listen for him to call us by name because he knows us. Like Mary, we look to this Jesus to teach us. When she recognizes him, she calls him teacher because she knows that she needs to be taught what this future looks and feels like as it creeps into our now. And like Mary, we need to run. (laughs) We need to run until our hearts beat out of our chest and tell with insufficient words, with wild words about what we've encountered, who we've encountered, what difference it's made in our lives. This hope for a resurrected future has to leak back into our present in tangible ways. When I was thinking about that, I was, I was even thinking in, in the Bible New Testament how this plays out in the early church and, and specifically in Paul's letters. And, and, and I thought about how when Paul shows up to write Philemon and, and he writes this letter to a slaveholder to demand that his property, Onesimus, a runaway slave, go back to him and that Philemon look at him now as a brother and not as property. This is what the resurrection does. It disturbs that old order. And then Paul writes this from prison, asking that a guest room be made up for him when he gets out. That is hope, right? That is a hopeful future. That It's an ellipsis that has come to replace the stark punctuation of the way things are, of sin and death. This permeates Paul's thoughts, and it translates into real life into slaves and captives being freed. These cosmic concepts of freedom and deliverance from sin and death meet their tangible, concrete counterparts. Be free, but more than that, because Christ rose from the dead, be free for freedom. Elsewhere in Galatians, he encapsulates this kind of play acting, this participation in Christ. He says in 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives with me, in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So because you've been nailed to the cross with Christ. Now, with Christ, you fold up those grave clothes and you walk in newness of life. Fold up someone else's grave clothes with them so that they can walk in newness of life. You remember when you were a kid and you helped your mom, make, your mom or dad make the bed and you helped them fold up the sheets, especially the fitted sheets? Do that with someone else with those grave clothes. Put to bed that old self, because that grave is empty. And there's no one there anymore. So we anticipate this lived-in future. It's neither a sanitized IKEA version of our own efforts or a dystopia of our own worst fears. But rather, it's a future that might be mistaken for a garden that we might mistake the prototype of what it means to be a human being for a gardener. When my kids ask questions about what heaven's going to be like, I don't really know all the answers, but I kind of imagine some. Like last week, Noah asked um, 
she was really concerned that there would be potties in heaven, you know, like there's, which I think she's taking the bodiliness of it. That's another thing. I don't know all those answers, but I do know there will be dirt in heaven. Transfigured dirt that will provide the nutrients and habitat for flourishing in life. The dirt from which we're all made, that ash Wednesday dust from which we came and to which we'll return, will dazzle with Easter life and vibrancy. I want to suggest that if this is what the future is going to be like, we all become at least a little acquainted with it now. That our primary posture in the world and our families and society might be of cultivation, metaphorically but also physically. You see, I, I think doing things, even little small gestures with your body helps you do the grand things, the big story. So if the future is like a garden, then if you've been around Oak Church for a while, I sure as heck hope that you'd be in our garden at some point. We don't need your work. Like this has the potential to change you, to shape you, to change your imagination. If you've been here for six months at the longest, welcome to Oak Church. Because <laughs> I think God speaks to these tangible visible signs for amazingly rich, intangible spiritual realities. I think the same can be said for our kids' ministry. If you've been around Oak Church for six months, how about, not just I hope, I, I, I kind of expect, unless you have a good, unless you have a doctor's note, I expect you to be involved in our kids' ministry. Not just because we need volunteers. Every church you've ever been to, whatever size, whatever resources, always needs kids' volunteers. But it's not nearly as pragmatic as that. It's because the kingdom of God arrives in and to and through children. Matthew says, Matthew 18, Jesus says, I assure you that if you don't turn your lives around and become like a child, you definitely won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who humble themselves like this little child be, will be the greatest in the coming kingdom. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So if I have my math right, and the coming kingdom is the future, and that future involves dirt, our present lives bear amazing potential to experience and be formed for that future kingdom now. And who knows more about getting dirty than kids? I can attest to this well. When looked like at this, uh, when, when you look at it like this, volunteering to spend a Sunday morning talking to kids about Jesus might be the most transformational thing you'll do with your whole week. It might over time be better for you than for them, but I think it will be good for them. It might be the most meaningful form of hospitality you can learn. You might actually serve Jesus. He says, welcome Jesus. It might get some of this future into your bones in the present. In the same way, sinking to the rhythms of this garden with all its mess and all the ways we have to inevitably rely on things like rain and sun, with all the predictable unpredictability of it, might root you and ground you in the reality of the resurrected Jesus. We have a chance to dramatize this, to experiment, to participate in this local inbreaking kingdom of God that's begun with Jesus being raised from the dead.
I want to close. I want to close with a poem this morning, and uh, it's from an Irish poet named Malcolm White. And for you guys who were here on Good Friday, Joey read his sonnet from the eleventh station of the cross. And the following is a surprise fifteenth station. He had the twelve stations, and then he wrote two for. Holy Saturday, and he wrote this surprise 15th station uh, for a friend named Mary, um, whose husband had recently died. He blesses every love which weeps and grieves, and now he blesses hers who stood and wept and would not be consoled or leave her love's last touching place, but watched as low light crept up from the east. A sound behind her stirs, a scatter of bright bird song through the air. She turns, but cannot focus through the tears or recognize the gardener standing there. She hardly hears his gentle question, why, why are you weeping? Or sees the play of light that brightens as she chokes out her reply. They took my love away, my night, my day is night. And then she hears her name. She hears love say the word that turns her night and ours today. Pray with me. And Father, when we're anxious about the future, Help us trust in your vision. Help us trust in what you've done. Help us join in this at-hand kingdom. Help us be a part of this future now. Lord, we thank you as we grieve, as we are sick, as we are in our sin, and as we die, that we might be joined to Christ and his death on the cross, so that we might also be joined in his resurrection, in his newness of life, in his eternal life. And Lord, we, we thank you for what this looks like. It's, it's so subtle. If, if we don't have eyes and ears, we're going to miss it. It's a life of, of cultivation. It's a life of culture making. It's a life of thankfulness and generosity and grace and peace and hope. Father, we ask that you grow that life here in us, in each of us, that you grow that life in this church, in this neighborhood. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus, the resurrected name of Jesus. Amen.